heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Big shocking points to me in all of this. It really and truly is the medical community. Okay. And we started to see that early on here at America Out Loud, very, very early on. Uh, because of our uh, relationships with a lot of medical doctors, uh, as you know, that are uh, part of our team here at America Out Loud. And we started to see that, you know, the protocol, the early treatment, and uh, those early conversations were discussed and I heard them, but I, I really didn't grasp until I went through this myself what that early treatment meant. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, early, I mean, you can bang that against your head, early treatment, early treatment, early treatment. What does it really mean when it hits your body? And well, you know real quick what it means because it can make the difference of life and death. Throughout all of that, the medical community, it became totally politicized. I mean, it was really like the one percenters, the frontline doctors. You remember you started to see those early pictures of the doctors in white coats? And it, it was a, a bit uh, odd that there were, you know, a lot of us had to decide right then. Were they the exception or the rule? Were they just a bunch of conspiracy kana artists? Or were these people the legit faction of this trauma that we were seeing in the medical community because everything became toxic at the top of the food chain don't you think everything became toxic everything was political and so i think right away americans started to lose trust and confidence in the system and that's the first thing that's happened through this whole covid thing and and the other thing we started to catch on early on was the way they counted the deaths. And it was very odd because the death counts were, were climbing high, really high. But then when you looked at it, a lot of people had a lot of comorbidities of things that, you know, potentially they could have died easily. And again, we, as I suggested to you before, we did not cure heart disease or lungs or, uh, you know, cancer in that period of time. So then you come and, and I've got some interesting facts for you today and stats to share with you a bit after on how many of those were really contributed to COVID deaths. It's, it's shocking. It is actually shocking. People who died strictly from COVID and people who died with other comorbidities or issues, okay, uh, that were all classified as deaths of COVID, which raised the number count, which created fear. Now, all of that fear has a factor here because it infiltrated our medical system. It infiltrated our hospitals. And, you know, in the sad reality we started seeing is that people couldn't visit their loved ones in the hospital. You couldn't get entrance to go see. Everything was COVID. And there was a whole new set of rules over here that were COVID related that changed everything. You see, we lost control of our loved ones and ourselves, for that matter. If we enter the hospital, it, it was a whole nother environment, actually when you entered the hospital. And it, and it seems like they, and we're hearing some wicked stories, by the way. I mean, some really wicked stories in here uh, of how the neglect and some of the decision-making where the loved ones of the patients lost total control. 
I mean, couldn't even make the decision. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Like what I want to give my 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 uh, my my child or my mom or my my sister, my whatever it is, that loved one that's in the hospital. And then you see a lot of the sad pictures where, you know, they're talking on phones and iPads, you know, on their deathbed when they're dying because they couldn't get access to visit them or see them. And that was was quite a moment. We'd never lived, experienced anything like this ever in our nation. We've never seen anything like it. So we were all sort of caught off guard, uh, really trying to understand what was happening, you know, with all of this. The drumbeat I started to hear in, in my circles were keep people out of the hospital, no matter what, get the early treatment in, keep people out of the hospital, because once they enter the hospital, not only do you lose control, but the chances of death increase dramatically. And then you say, well, why? Because, you know, our mindset, remember, you know, through all of this is that you go to the hospital to be well, you go to the hospital to be fixed, you go to the hospital to be cured, you go to the hospital thinking you're going to come home. You don't go to the hospital to necessarily die, not from this sort of a thing. But you have to remember, the odd thing about COVID is it is a bioweapon. This is not a virus, uh, you know, uh, specifically in the normal sense of what we would say. And this thing gets into your body and it decimates and it comes after you three ways to Sunday is what it is. You see, everything about this thing is strange, people. Everything about it, including the vaccine. It's a gene therapy deal. It's not really a vaccine. It is. Everything is not quite what is a game of smoke and mirrors, really. The problem with this, all this creates a lot of, lot of un, uh, you know, um, shady areas, a lot of untrust. People, you know, they don't really believe the system anymore. I think that's what's happened. We've lost faith. And then the powers to be want to point that out and begin to call you radical or, you know, you're really not following the protocol. You're not following the sheeple, I guess, would be what I would say, because you have your own voice or opinion. And that becomes a little bit of a problem. The sad reality in this I want to talk to you today is about what I call humanity, the human factor in all of this. I mean, it really breaks one's heart when you see, and this COVID bioweapon chapter we've gone through has changed the landscape, people. It has taken our loved ones away. It has changed the way we think. I, I don't imagine we'll ever be the same again. This, this is a, you know, th- you think about one case of PTSD. This is like a whole nation of PTSD, really. I mean, will we ever be the same again? Yeah, well, again, depends what that is, but I'm not thinking we will. I'm thinking there's, and so the question becomes, what lessons do we learn from all this? What do we take forward? Because we can't fix or undo what we can't fix or undo. We can only change those things that we can moving forward. It's something to remember here. So every now and then there's uh, an email that comes along that really stops you in your tracks, a message. I want to read this one to you right now from Christina. And it said this, my mother died on September 16th from COVID at Lakeland Regional Health, but we believe it was the negligent or criminal protocol the hospital uses for treating COVID patients that ultimately killed her. Well, they held her hostage, virtually eliminating family advocacy. They refused medications and vitamins that we begged for. They did not feed her regularly. They did not check on her regularly and left her sitting in a urine-soaked bed for two hours. They unhooked her 
for all her IVs the morning she was put on a vent, and she texted me, afraid she knew something was wrong. They were planning to vent her. It was not an emergency. They killed her. She was unvaccinated. So that was the message uh, received in from uh, Christina Croft. And uh, I invited her on the program here to talk about this story uh, because I, it just spoke to me. There was something about the story and the way that you structured it, Christina, that uh, I thought needed to be said. There was a story here, obviously. Uh, Christina, welcome to the Voice of a Nation here. Thank you for having me today, Mike. Malcolm. It's a pleasure to have you. It is my privilege uh, completely. And, uh, and I thank you for uh, sharing your story and obviously the outrage and the anger. And I, I understand this. I mean, I don't know if you know this and I, I don't want to go too far with this now because I don't want to take your time. But I, I was on the verge of losing my wife. I mean, she almost mm -hmm. died from this. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were close. I mean, they were ready to put her on a ventilator. And I'll get into more of that after. Let's not worry about it. But the, the point is, so I know what you mean. It's that moment and the decisions we make of life and death. And then the results that we have to live with after the fact. So tell me with your mom, first of all, how old was your mom? She had just turned 60 in June. Oh, my golly. Young woman. Yes. Wow. 60 years old. That's it. And was she, did she have other comorbidities? Was she healthy? What, what was her makeup? She did have other comorbidities. Um, she was overweight and she had asthma um, that she was treated for regularly. So she she already did have some issues going in with it. Yeah. The asthma can be a problem because of the breathing, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Because this thing just takes your breath away in so many ways. And if it gets into your lungs, is that what happened with her? It got into her lungs? Yes. So she um, started getting sick the week of August 22nd and her and my father both got sick at the same time. And she, they got the antibody treatments and my dad started to get better, but my mom didn't. And we were monitoring her oxygen at home. And when it got down to about 88% and she wasn't able to bring it back up by, you know, changing position or taking deep breaths, then um, her family care physician recommended that she go to the emergency room. From that standpoint, how, how many days before then did you say she had this, that you knew she had it? So she would have had it a, a little bit more than a week before she went to, to the emergency room. That's what I thought you said. Okay. Now, what was she taking? What medications was she on? What was happening in that week? Well, we had tried to get her ivermectin through the online doctor services, and we succeeded in initially getting her a prescription. But when we tried to get it filled, they said that it had been canceled. So we contacted them and they said they were no longer providing ivermectin prescriptions because there was not enough evidence that it was working for COVID. So we contacted all of the pharmacies in the county and all of them said they would not Okay. And we went to an online um, doctor's, I think, I don't remember the name, it might have been frontline doctors, but we couldn't get the prescription at that time. So she mm. was taking her inhaler, her doctor had put her on steroids, um, just at home treatments, but nothing, nothing until she went and got the antibody uh, treatments at the hospital. Yeah. Now, who was with your mom while all this was going on? She lived at home with my dad and my 16 year old brother. Okay. So you weren't there, uh, fig fig right, figuratively, you weren't right there. 
No, she lives about, she lived about 45 minutes away. So um, I was on the phone with her regularly, um, but she didn't really want people to come around. I had already had COVID in January of this year, um, but she still didn't want anybody to visit because she was afraid of passing it to us. Right. There's this misnomer out there that you can get it again. You realize you, you really can't get it again. You know that. I tried to tell her that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of people who believe that. Yeah. So you're so the ivermectin. So you were never able to get that prescription filled, right? Correct. So and she never got it into her system then. No. When we got to the hospital, we begged them to give her ivermectin. Right. They refused. They said that that was against their protocol. Um, we also asked for high dose vitamin C IV of mm-hmm. 20,000 milligrams and right. they refused that. And they lied to us and said that the hospital does not provide vitamin C IVs, which is not true. We found out later. Um, so she, she, throughout her whole treatment at the hospital, we repeatedly asked, please give her ivermectin, please give her vitamin C IV. And they refused to deviate from their protocol. So they said no. So did they give her, did they, what what were they given, a remdesivir? Yes. So on September 2nd, um, she she was told she was going to get the Trump protocol is what they called it. And she didn't know the name of the medications. It was a cocktail of several medications. And at that time, unfortunately, we were not very aware of remdesivir and the effects that it has on patients. Um, and we didn't know that was in the cocktail that they gave her until she had already completed a five-day course. So what Um, you were told, I think you're saying to me, and I don't know this, I think you're saying to me, you've discovered since then that remdesivir is not a cure. Correct. We, we did a lot of research. We found out that, uh, a lot of patients with remdesivir have renal failure, which my mom ended up having. And, um, but we weren't aware that that's what she was taking. They just told her it was the Trump code, uh, cocktail. Yeah. I hear you loud and clear. Uh, so she was taking that. Was she, was she given steroids as well? She was, and she was on oxygen. Um, we weren't allowed to communicate with her very much. So when she was on the COVID floor, there was no visitation whatsoever. Um, not even my dad could go visit her. So the only communication we had was via text messages with her because she couldn't talk well with the, the, the oxygen mask on. Um, and then maybe once a day, a nurse or a doctor would call and give us an update. Um, so we didn't really have access to advocate for her or to really know for sure what all was being done to her while she was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So the hospital is, they're not, who's talking to the hospital, you or your dad and trying to give them all these new instructions. My dad, and I was listening to what you were saying earlier, my mom and dad came from a generation where they trusted that doctors and nurses had their best interests at heart. Yeah. And, and even to an extent I did too, like I didn't really think that they would intentionally do something to my mom, but um, so he would just kind of listen to whatever the doctors would say and say, oh, okay. You know, he didn't really know how to advocate best for her. And most of the time they had a little cliche that they would say where they'd say, well, she's not getting any worse, but she's not getting any better. And I don't know how many times we heard them say that to us about her, uh, what state she was in, not getting any worse, but not getting any better. Hmm. How long was she in the hospital before this happened? She was on the COVID floor from August 31st to September 6th on the morning of September 6th. She texted my dad at 7.30 in the morning and said that they had unhooked her from all of her 
IVs and that nothing, she wasn't getting any medication. And he's, he responded, you know, why would they do that? And she responded with one word. She wrote Richard, which is my father's name. And she never called him Richard unless she was upset or something was wrong. And at that point we know that she knew something was about to happen. And then she sent him an, an, an immediately following text that said, please find out what's going on. Something's wrong. And that was the last time that she spoke to my dad. And oh so she was God. vented that day. Um, they did not ask my dad permission to put her on a ventilator. She was put on the ventilator and sent to the ICU. And then they called us all, uh, the whole family up to say goodbye. Well, they thought we were going to all say goodbye that night. You, you mean you went into the hospital to do that? They did. They called us. So this was September 6th was Labor Day. They called us and said, you know, everybody come now. And we feel like they were expecting us all to just let her go that night. Um, Of course, we weren't ready. (laughs) So we wanted to fight and we wanted them to give her uh, the best treatment that they could. Um, So she was ventilated. At that time, the doctor, his name is Dr. Ketty, he told us that he vented her as a precaution. Um, that she was at 60% ventilation. However, later a nurse told us that it was an emergency, that her oxygen had plummeted and she didn't know who she was and where she was. So there's conflicting reports as to why they put her on a ventilator. Um, He told us that her kidneys were fine at that point, but by the next day her kidneys had shut down and she was in renal failure. And it's, it's very hard to advocate for your family member when you're not allowed in their room So they have COVID protocol in the ICU where uh, you can stand outside the glass and look at them, Mm -hmm. but you're not allowed in their room. And every now and then they might let you in. If you get a really nice nurse that day, they might let you in for a few minutes, but you have to wear full um, PPE in order to go in, booties, gown, gloves, double masks, goggles, hairnet. Um, So we had a really hard time knowing what they were doing to her and being able to advocate for her because there was just there was just no communication between the hospital and the family. Right. So it was wow, very difficult situation. There's so much wrong that went on here with with your story, with your case here, uh, including the fact that they took the uh, prerogative to do the the ventilator without any permission. Nobody knew what was going on, Christina. Uh, you didn't get the early treatment or the pharmacies blocked you on the medication, the early treatment medication. So she was having a you know rough ride it through that first chapter, which she could have had progress there had you had the proper medications. And this is the sad story and the reality we're hearing uh, that has impacted millions around the globe with the same story that, I mean, you realize the story we're talking about right now, as crazy as it is, is actually uh, pretty commonplace. You know that. Well, we've actually had uh, multiple people contact us with the, it almost sounds like they're telling us our mom's story. It's the same exact uh, protocol, same verbiage. So they have specific phrases they say to the family. For example, when we got to the ICU, they said, when, once you decide to take her off life support, you'll all be allowed to go into her room and comfort her. As in, once you decide to let your family member die, then you can go see her. And I don't know how many people we've heard, um, you know, through video testimonies or they've written to us who said that they were told the same exact thing. And, and, and that's an interesting thing, too, is once we decided to let my mom go, they moved her to a palliative care 
room. And there was probably 12 or 14 of us that gathered in the room with no masks, no gloves, right next to her bed, as if, okay, now that she's we're willing to let her die. She's no longer a risk of us getting COVID. So that it's illogical, the, the, the protocol that they have restricting families from their loved ones. It's almost as if they do that intentionally to keep you from being able to advocate for them. I wonder, I mean, I, I wonder, you, you believe at this point, having gone through it all, you believe there's a lot of truth to that statement. Yes, I really do. And there's, there's other little things like, um, my mom would text my dad at 1230 in the afternoon and say, I finally got my breakfast. So there were, there were days where she was going hours without being fed and she was going, and, and when you're sick, you need nutrients, you know, and we need nutrients when we're well. <laughs> and so she wasn't being, um, cared for properly aside from not getting the medications that we were requesting. She also wasn't getting food and she wasn't getting uh, attention, you know, the nurses and doctors weren't coming into the room and checking on her. And she had a chart in her room where they, you know, they put the patient's goals and what appointments they have and what the care team's goals are. And hers was blank. Mm -hmm. It was like they had no intention of trying to help her get better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at the same time, Christina, you were going through this right through that Labor Day holiday before and after, right? It was right then. Mm -hmm. It's the same time that we were going through it, my wife and I. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we both had COVID and and my wife ended up in the hospital. Um, and uh, But the two stories differ from there. And we know how blessed, how I tell you, Christina, I can't describe to you. I mean, I'm very aware of how blessed we were. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know, I, I, I just know. And it, it dramatically changed our thinking it impacted our personal life in a way we thought it never would. Uh, we both got COVID at the same time. And this was after thinking we probably wouldn't get it because it had been what? It had been out there for a year and over over a year and a half, right? Right. right. Over, yeah, it had been circulating the, the planet since the previous. Well, actually, we got it here in the States around January 2020, but it was in China well before then, those last quarter of nine, of uh, 2019, you see, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we got it. And... And we got really sick. Now, when you got it, you had it yourself, you said. Uh, Did you, did you, uh, what kind of an impact did you have from it? Um, It was more like a flu for me. It kind of messed my blood pressure up a little bit. I had some issues with my blood pressure, uh, but my whole family had it. My husband got it first and he coughed a lot. Uh, I have five children and they all kind of just, felt tired for a day and then they were fine. <laughs> so they yep. never really had m- much symptoms from it. Yep. Yep. The kids did it. Yeah. And you were down for about how long with it roughly? Well, I was sick for about a week, mm-hmm. maybe two weeks. And then I had that kind of COVID fatigue is what they're calling it. Where you just feel really tired and, and it's hard to, hard to keep going again for for about a month after I got it. Right, exactly. You had the brain fog, right? With your brain, right, hard to yeah. really think and put it, yeah, in perspective. And sometimes you had impacts in your the rest of your body, your lungs, other other aspects of your body, right? We're taking a hit. Like you mm-hmm. say, a couple of weeks of more aggressive, but over a month it took for it to get through your system, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's what it is. That's what it is with this. That's what happened to me as well in that same regard. So yeah, did you have a high fevers the first day you got it? Was your really high fevers? I did. So 
it was kind of like when you have the flu, I had the, the body aches and the fever for a day. Then the next day I kind of just was really tired. Um, I never really got a bad cough. I have a cough right now because I'm getting over bronchitis, but I cough more when I get bronchitis, <laughs> but, um, I just kind of felt really tired and again, it did kind of mess up my blood pressure a little bit, but other than that, I, it wasn't too bad. And the, and the really tricky thing about COVID is just when you think you're feeling decent, <laughs> it'll come at you again. You see that? Yeah. 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 I, I did notice that like once I was like, well, I got to get up and do something with the kids. And then I would be worn out within about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so for us that, that happened. And then what I did, uh, Christina is we got immediately, I got on, you know, I have been talking at America out loud here for the previous year and a half plus about COVID. We had it all over our network, all over our platform. We've been doing all kinds of things, trying to help everybody else out, Christina, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't know it would impact my own life in any way. I really had no way to know, right? And right. so it did that. And then we got the early treatment meds that I had been talking about, but strictly as talk, you know, unless you really go through this yourself, you really don't know, do you? Right. Well, I had a, I have a friend who I love dearly and she does all sorts of research and she uh, was able to find an online doctor that prescribed hydroxychloroquine for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I did take that, but it wasn't until about day six or seven. So I, I don't know how much it really helped me because I had already had COVID for almost a week. Um, but same as you, like once you get it, you, you read a lot of stuff, but you really mm -hmm. don't know how to deal with it until you have it. Yeah. How long did you take HCQ for? I took the full dose. I don't remember how long it was. I think it was a week. Okay. Okay. Once a week. And you never got sick enough where you had to go in the hospital or anything close to that? No. No. Okay. All right. You know, about 99.7% of the people are going to survive this just fine, Christina, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It just depends upon that. There are those who are going to, it's going to hit your body. And again, if you have other comorbidities and things, you definitely become a bigger risk. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing is when I started hearing the doctors advocate early treatment and the importance of this, you really begin to realize it. And in the case of your mom and your family, it was, it was very true. And in the case of my life as well, it was very true. Now mm -hmm. I was wondering if you got HCQ through the online, couldn't you get that for your mom as well? Well, we, she went on, on the online doctor. I don't remember what it was called, but it's some sort of online doctor prescribing thing. And they were specifically requesting ivermectin at that time, because mm -hmm. this was kind of later when everybody sort of realized that ivermectin was so good. And um, she also was requesting budesonide for her asthma. Um, and she wasn't able to get either one. So um, I don't and so know. So you couldn't get them from the same source you did then that wasn't working. No, she used a different, a different agency. This is what's happening all over, all over the world. I mean, I say all over the world because we get tremendous uh, communications in here from Australians and from Europeans, both. And they're having the same problems, uh, Christine, the same exact problems we're all having, even more severe, actually, than us. The crackdown in some of those markets are way more severe than now, and they can't get any of the meds. They can't get anything. In fact, they've been outlawed, and there's laws against them in Australia. Yeah. And it's interesting because on the NIH website, they have ivermectin listed mm -hmm. right below remdesivir as a treatment for COVID. And it's been in, on there since July. Mm -hmm. And um, the doctors and nurses that we talked to at the hospital acted as if either they hadn't heard of it or they weren't even willing to discuss it. 
Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ketty actually told us that anything that we read online about ivermectin was anecdotal and that any study that we read was fraudulent. Um, so they're not even willing to look at it as, as a treatment for COVID. People who were saying that, and, and in spite of all the evidence, what are your thoughts as to why they do that? I mean, you've given this some thought, obviously. And when you start to do the math, what comes to your mind, please? Well, I'm a Christian, so I come from a Christian perspective. So I do think there is a um, an evil perspective uh, on it. I think there's their strong delusion. And so either they're complicit and they know that they are killing their patients or there's a very strong delusion where they just, you know, they just keep marching along and do what they're told, but they don't really understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's an evil component um, in the that's permeating the medical community. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's either arrogance, ignorance, or stupidity, huh? You know. Yeah. And yeah. and and it certainly, surely, is self-induced, and and that's something uh, Dr. McCullough and I talk about all the time. How the it's a one percent of the frontline doctors and people that take the McCullough protocol. Uh, that actually are on the front lines fighting this thing, and the rest of the medical community has has drunk the Kool Aid. You know that. Exactly. I I don't understand it. It's it <laughs> kind of like blows my mind. Um, when we stopped, we talked to the palliative care doctor. Mm-hmm. She told us that she's been the palliative care doctor um, at Lakeland Regional since January of 2020, mm-hmm. and that they've only had one patient who was ventilated on COVID that has survived. Right. One. And I told her, that's the definition of insanity, that you guys use the same protocol over and over and all your patients are dying and you're not even willing to look at any kind of alternative treatments. I don't understand. You know, I'm on the outside looking in and I think this is crazy. Yeah, it is (laughs) indeed. It doesn't make sense. All right. Christina, what I'd like to do is this. Are you are you okay with time that you can stay with us? Are you okay with that? Yes. I just think it's really important. You listen to some of the things Christina is saying as a Christian woman, uh, you begin to do the math and you say something is evil here about all this. And we've been saying that right along. Now, in my own experience, you know, we took ivermectin. You, you, some of you out there know, you know me, you, you, you know, we've talked about this sometime back ago here, but uh, I mean, I don't bring this up every point I can because it, it, it's, it's just a very personal story, COVID is. It's very, very personal. You've got to be in the right mindset to talk about it as well, you know, truly. But uh, we got the early medications, and it was really through the miracle of Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, Dr. John Littell, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Leavleet, um, Dr. Stephen LaTulip, some amazing people who were giving me uh, great ins- inside baseball information. You know, things we had been reporting on and talking about here and sharing with you all through the network. I mean, it's all over our platform on America Out Loud. You know that already. Uh, trying to help lives, save lives, do the right thing. Well, that's what we've been doing here right along from the beginning of this uh, catastrophe, right? The tragedy here is, is beyond comprehension. And you multiply this all over the planet and you begin to see something is whacked out here. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, and none of us really live in theories. We're not conspiracy kind of people. And I can tell Christine is not either. But at some point, the math does add up. Two plus two does kind of still equal four today, you see. And that's what we're realizing here. 
you know, once this COVID gets into your lungs and it starts to really wreak havoc there, that's the danger. The danger we've said from the beginning is to keep your loved ones and yourself out of the hospital with by all chances you can. It's a very strange, uh, you know, paradigm here because normally you, the hospitals to save people and you, we think this way and it's, and like Christina was saying, her folks were born and raised in the time that many people were where, you know, you, you looked at that as a saving grace and the doctor was like your clergy. You, you always believed what they would tell you, right? I mean, come on, yeah, right? And that's what it was here. So you believe the doctor, well, my doctor said, it's like, you know, God speaking. It's like, that's, well, that's, I mean, that's the word. <laughs> Doc said that. We all think that way. Yeah, very seldom do people go for a second or third opinion. And of course, in this case, when you've got all this stress and pressure around you, and remember the clock is off on the wall. The clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. COVID doesn't break or exercise or give you time to fix anything. It, it's right there. And that clock continued to stick as, you know, as, as people are messing around with, I can't fill your prescription. I can't give you ivermectin. It might save your life, but, uh, you know, we, we don't really want to get, whatever the reasons are. And then you think, why? Why? What is it? What's, what's, what is this skin off your nose for, Mr. Pharmacist? Well, you see what I mean about the evil people? The product, there's an evil. It's up at the top layer here. And it's permeated down into the medical community, the pharmaceutical community, and others in that field. And that evil is right. And she's right, Christina. It's permeated through the whole, the whole parade here. And, it's, and a lot of people are not really understanding. So, you know, with us, we were fighting uh, to keep uh, my, my wife got it more serious. It got into her chest, just like it did with your mom, Christina. And I'll tell you the story real briefly. The, the reason my wife is very healthy, she's uh, a, a small woman. She's not big by any means. She doesn't have the comorbidities and none of that, actually. Uh, she had nothing, zero. So then you say, well, why did it impact her so much, Malcolm? Why was she such the exception? Well, here's why. She was in a horrible car accident just weeks before that, Christina, is what happened. And I'm, I'm telling all listeners this that you may not know, but I'm telling Christina as well. Um, she was, uh, uh, her uh, SUV, a new SUV was totaled in the accident. And uh, somebody came across the double line and hit her in a head-on collision is the story. Very simple. Keep it simple. Okay. Put her and almost killed her and my son as well. My teenage son, almost, they almost got killed in the car accident. They were thrown in a ditch and obliterated the, the vehicle. And somehow, by the grace of God, we got through that. Now, she was going through the MRIs and all the medical stuff and the doctors while she, we sadly got COVID. Well, COVID looked at her as, wow, well, here's a candidate we can attack because her, you know, her immune system is clearly compromised. Clearly, she was her heavily bruised, her chest was. I mean, she went through a pretty horrific deal with that car accident. And then we got COVID just like that. And that knocked her down big time. Well, I did early treatment meds with her for the week, trying to save her life. Gave her all the regiment, the shots, the blood thinner, the, 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 the zincs, the entire McCullough protocol, all of it, the ivermectin, everything. And I was not feeling well myself, keep in mind. I was hurt. And of course, with this COVID, you get brain fog. You don't feel well. You're really not yourself by any stretch of the imagination, you know? And I had prided myself on being healthy as well, but this thing will definitely hit you. There's no doubt about it. And with, with uh, D, with my wife, uh, you know, it was sad because we had an oxygen machine at the house. And like you were talking, Christina, as well, her oxygen levels fell and they were falling to the low, lower 80s. We can no lo longer sustain it. Now, we had a five liter machine. We were pumping the oxygen. Uh, she was it was tough. There were times I was seeing her eyes sort of roll back in her head. She was losing 
And she doesn't remember any of that, by the way. Uh, And even all the times I talked to her, she doesn't remember any of it today. It's total thought. Doesn't remember any of the details. We even had a meeting about kind of her last rites where we were going through her numbers and finance things and things with the kids in school and college and life because I didn't, uh, we knew we had to now, and I talked to McCullough and others, and we had to get her in the hospital to uh, get some proper oxygen. We didn't, we see the problem with the hospitals is they don't treat COVID. They're not given any of the early meds. So even that morning, I decided the night before we were going to have to get her in to get proper oxygen and we were going to lose her. The oxygens were just falling too low. We gave her all the early treatments, but we weren't turning that corner quick and faster soon enough, you see. And so I was the most difficult decision I ever had to make in my life, my friends. And I made it uh, a Thursday evening. Friday morning, we got up. My wife doesn't remember any of this. We went through early that morning, about 6, 6.30, kind of a final conversation you'd have with your loved one, thinking I probably won't see her again. I knew I was going to have to call, uh, you know, 911 and have her admitted and they'd come get her. She was very weak, struggling. And, uh, you know, we had to get that oxygen or that morning. I gave her the last treatment of ivermectin. I gave her 10 of them, uh, a blast, um, the three milligram pills. And I, I, I hit those hard, gave her the rest of the meds, gave her the shot, the blood thinner, everything I could properly give her that I'd been giving her for about six days before then, as we had had it, you know, it was only six days later. And then I had to make the phone call and I, I called and I, I was in tears. I, I mean, I was a mess. I, I wasn't sure I'd ever see her again. And I knew the hospital protocol was going to be rough. I called my attorney, had my attorney on hold to explain to the attorney everything. I said, if the hospital gives me any grief here, I said, you'll be ready because I'm going to full. You're not going to want to deal with Mr. Out Loud here. I'm going to be the biggest pain in the ass they've ever seen this side of the Mississippi. And so we, I let the hospital know what I expected when I brought her in there. And so what they did is this, and I'll tell you, we, we were blessed because they put her on a piece of equipment. I don't know if you heard of this called the heated high flow and the heated high flow. It puts approximately 60 liters of oxygen from what I understand all around your body, non-invasively. And you either, that either works or it doesn't. I spoke with the head doctor, everything's on the phone because you don't get any entrance to the hospital whatsoever. And I was ready to have the attorney do a full court press, but you got to make your decisions how much you want to piss them off or not as well, or how much treatment you're going to do. I didn't get any grief initially. And I, I, you know, I'd had all those meds in her. I knew what we were doing. I had my docs on the line. We were doing what we could. So, and then, you know, they put her on the heated high flow. And what happened is the doctor said to me, as soon as she got in there, I spoke to the doctor within you know 30 minutes, the head doctor there in the, the, uh, the ICU critical care. And he said, your, your wife's in very difficult shape. She's, she's, in, she's in critical care. And we're going to put her on this piece of equipment, the heated high flow. We'll know in a couple of hours, couple, two, two, three hours most, we'll know. If her body accepts this and reacts to it in a positive way, you'll, you'll have a fight in chance. If it doesn't, we have no cause but to put her on a ventilator. She'll be in a medical coma. Well, I knew I had done the stats already. We did all the math. I talked about this plenty. A lot of people go on the ventilator, never come off. And again, the, the quality of care. And I knew the hospital wasn't giving her what we wanted to. I'd already given her all that trip. And I wasn't really worried about what they were, but I needed the proper oxygen. We needed her. So bottom line is I held my breath, people. And I prayed that this was going to work. And 
that evening, just a few hours later, that day was that afternoon. I was so restless. My body was in panic attacks. And I spoke to the doctor again, and the equipment was working. Her body was taken the oxygen in, in a proper way. And they were seeing results with the heated high flow, preventing the ventilator from the medical coma. That night again, later on, I spoke to them again, same thing. The next morning, same thing. Progress, progress, progress. And then about midday, the next day, she went on to another piece of equipment, less, less of the oxygen she needed, but to build her up. Now, I said to my wife prior to that, I looked in her eyes. I've never looked as deep into her soul as I had at that moment. And I said, you know, I said, you have to fight for this. This fight has to come from you. You've got to go in there and you've got to fight because it matters. And that's the conversation we had. I wasn't sure, people, what was going to happen. I don't know. It's, uh, it's life-changing what happens when you go through this. Uh, we'll take a pause, my fellow Americans, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Voice of a Nation. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have a, an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. 
What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Welcome back to the Voice of a Nation. It is Malcolm Out Loud here, yours truly. And thank you for being with us on the mission today. It's a very personal mission today. We're talking about COVID. You've been hearing up front the story of Christina Croft. Uh, and also, uh, yeah, I share with you some of the um, personal elements of my own story and having gone through it. You know, uh, interestingly enough, uh, over 23% of COVID deaths are, are at uh, in the hospitals now are linked to they're saying the surging caseloads and the fact that the hospitals are overwhelmed um you know and 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 i remember some of that happening from when we were dealing with the hospitals themselves but we're talking one in four deaths here may be attributed to hospital strains caused by surging caseloads here uh, let me bring back here Christina Croft. And Christina, did you see the statement I just made there? And this is a study. It's a new study came out with the um, the, the Annals of Internal Medicine uh, on these surgeon caseloads here. Uh, do you, did you have a sense that they were overly busy or that it was that part of the problem that they couldn't take care of your mom properly? I think that could have been part of it. Um, I know in the ICU, we had several nurses who spoke to us with tears in their eyes because they're losing all of their patients. Um, so I think part of, of, of that is that they're so stressed out. So I don't know if that's affecting the way that they uh, manage their patients. Um, I think there's a little bit where they start viewing them as a number rather than as a human being. And so my mom kind of became just another number of a patient who was going to die where they didn't have hope that they could help her. So I think there is that aspect that they, um, not so much that they were overrun because there were no, you know, there were empty beds. I know when she was on the COVID floor, uh, my husband's a pastor, so he was able to sneak in <laughs> to see my mom because he's a clergy um, and all of the nurses were just sitting in the, the break room. So they're not so overworked that they have no time where they can't get to the patients. But I think there is that element of they are so stressed and they're so overwhelmed with death that the patients no longer are human to them. They just become a number. So, you know, you don't care for someone as intimately as you would 
if you consider them a mom or a spouse or a daughter or a sister. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You, you make perfect sense. What you're saying is it becomes more commonplace, doesn't it? You know, right. With the families not being allowed to visit as often, it's just such a strong disconnect. And I really do think it affects their, the way they care for their patients. And like I said, we had one nurse, um, her name was Kat. She was a wonderful nurse. Um, she just that there were tears in her eyes and she basically told us, I know your mom's going to die. And it was like heart wrenching. She said, but she's just like every other patient we have and we haven't had any survive. Okay. Let me ask you this, Christina, when you went into you at the very end, you, you were allowed in, you did go in to see your mom. Is that correct? Yes. In palliative okay. care. Okay. Right. And what was your mom conscious to talk to you? Did you have any communications with her? No, at that point she, uh, she was on heavy sedation. Um, she had no responses. We believe that she had a stroke a couple of days before her blood pressure spiked up to 280 over 270. And so at that point, she, she declined dram- dramatically. Um, so we think that she was no longer cognitive anyways, but she, she was not able to communicate with us at all. So you had no communication and you just seen your mom lifeless in the bed, right? Correct. They removed her from the uh, life support, the ventilator. Um, They kept her very comfortable. She did take breaths for about 45 minutes, um, which was really hard to hear. They were very slow and shallow, um, but my mom loved the Lord. And so we just sang gospel songs to her and comforted her as much as we could. Yeah. Uh, and were you there and the family there when she passed? Yes. So they allowed anybody who wanted to come up. And so I took my two oldest children and my husband with me, my father, my mom had seven kids. So most of us were able to be there, um, aunts and uncles. And some people chose to stay in the room once they removed her from the ventilator, but others stood in the hallway um, it's just a lot, you know? And so I stayed in, in the room with my dad, um, and my mom and dad were married for 41 years. They've been together since they were teenagers and, um, just watching my dad rub her head and tell her that he was going to miss her. It was really hard. Your dad now, how is he doing? Well, you know, everybody asks me that and as well as you can be when you lose, you know, the most important person in your life. Um, It's been really hard for him. Um, He does have my brother still living at home, so he's caring for him. Um, But it's been really difficult. Um, But my dad loves the Lord as well. And so we do have that comfort in knowing um, that she is no longer in pain and no longer afraid. Um, But still, you know, she was his whole world. So it's been really tough on him. Yeah. So what happens now with this? Are you, uh, does this end now or do you take this forward with the outline of what you had put on there with the hospital itself? Well, I, I've actually contacted some lawyers. Um, I had some friends who spoke to me about, you know, the only way to make changes is to go after the hospitals to, to make them make change. And I've come up against dead ends. Um, not a lot of lawyers want to deal with COVID, uh, with COVID problems. And so 
they're very sympathetic on the phone, but then they say, oh, I'm sorry, we can't help you at this time. So I've just been trying to tell anyone and everyone who listened to my mom's story because I hope that maybe someone will hear it and it will help them make better choices for their loved ones if they come into that situation um, to where they're like, you know, they can be more of an advocate for their loved one and know what kinds of medications to help them with. And so I just don't want my mom's story to her life to be in vain, her death to be in vain. Um, I want justice for her. (laughs) And uh, it's really hard because there's not a lot of people who want to listen. And so I'm very thankful that you gave me the opportunity to share her story and to get it out there. Um, And hopefully it might save at least one person. Well, we've been trying to do exactly the things you're saying to save that one person, uh, multiplied hopefully many times over by getting the early treatment protocols out there, by giving people the resources. I think what happens is there's a lot of things, like you say, within the hospital. My guess is a lot of these things become hearsay. And the question is how much of that is provable or not based on evidence. That's probably going to be the biggest challenge, I guess, huh? I think so. I think we have evidence as far as the text messages between my mom and my dad are time stamped. Mm-hmm. So there are instances where we know for sure that she wasn't being fed or we know for sure she wasn't being um, uh, checked on regularly. Um, so I don't know how much of that is can go into a case. You know what I'm saying? But um, I feel like there there was definitely negligence on the part of the hospital um, and there was malpractice on the part of Dr. Ketty um, that I believe could be a case. Let me ask you, uh, finally, when you heard me talk at the um, a little bit earlier in the program uh, within my own story, and I, and I actually shared some of that because I wanted you to hear it. Uh, what did you think of that? Well, honestly, I'm just so thankful that your wife survived. Uh, I just praise the Lord for that. And um, I, you are so brave. <laughs> um, it's hard to stand up against the medical community and to advocate for your family. Um, a lot of times they are very intimidating. And especially if you feel ill-equipped and you don't really know all the right terms or things like that. And so um, I think that you are a good example for others, you know, when, when their family is in that situation, you kind of got to be a bulldog. And um, I, I thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, good. It, it, it is about being what, what I always reference is the out loud truth, Christina, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, we can still be ladies and gentlemen and still get yeah. to the truth, right? Right? Right. Yeah. And that's what I mean all the time when I say the out loud truth. Let's, let's be real. Let's talk in real terms. Um, Christina, um, I, I, I wish it was a different outcome. I, I really do. And your, your story speaks to me in ways it's hard, I pro- maybe because of the personal impact in my own life. And I have to tell you, Christina, um, I know that our story could have went a different way. And then my, my, my two teenagers would have lost their mom as well. A young woman in the prime and like I said, healthy, no comorbidities, but you know, she had that car accident. Remember you heard me say that. Yeah. And she was heavily compromised her immune system. And that's what this is all about is you've got to be healthy. You've got, it's, it's a good reminder for us to be healthy in our lives. My, my heart goes out to you, your, your personal family, your children, husband, uh, who's a pastor, you say, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And, uh, and your dad, your, your, your amazing dad. 
and what he went through. And uh, I, I hope he hears this message in the program that just plays on America Out Loud Talk Radio. And I hope he takes some grace uh, from all of this and knowing that uh, there's a reason sometimes these things happen in our lives. We don't know what the reason is at the moment, but as many of us know as Christians, God typically has a plan, right? Yes, sir. That was my mom's favorite verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that uh, for those who love God, God, uh, he works all things together for our good. So, you know, I don't know why this happened. And I I do, just like you said, I wish it was different. (laughs) Um, I wish I had my mom, but I know that he has a plan and a purpose in all of this. So that gives me comfort. Yeah, it does indeed. Your mom's first name? Laura. Laura, I needed to know that. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's the thing. Uh, Christina, bless you. And um, you. I'm happy to uh, be able to tell the story and put it out there. Uh, there's a lot of lessons here, uh, my friends, to take from this as you listen to Christina and uh, her. I mean, it's real, the, the pain from this. And, you know, the pain from this and then the other side of this is still the anger. that we can't really lose sight of that. And I I say this too, as Christina hears me, but you know, there's an anger there and and, uh, that this is even happening that, you know, we we've been put in this uh, position and that we're compromised in the way that we have. And uh, uh, you know, and it's hard to fathom what's happened in the medical community. Why so much evil has uh, permeated the uh, uh, these industries as they have. It's uh, it's, it's, it's beyond understandable, including the pharmacies, the pharmaceutical business, big pharma, all of that. Of course, they, you know, the big story is they made a lot more money from the vaccines than they did uh, HCQ and, uh, you know, and ivermectin, which were cheap in comparison uh, to the money they were making with the other. A lot of people point to the uh, economics of it. Uh, whatever the reason is, it's selfish, it's cruel, it's pure evil, it's Satan's plan. It shouldn't be. And yet it is. And what do we always say? We're living in historical moments of time. And here we are, you know, and that's why I think it's important to look at stories like this with Christina. And, you know, I remind you myself of my own plight. And believe me, I look at things totally different today, people. I look at everything different. I see my wife differently. I know what we went through. I know what she went through. Person who loves life. No comorbidities whatsoever. You know, she would have never been put in this position, but she had a couple of bad things happen. The bad car accident and then the COVID, you know, and it happens, doesn't it? But in this lifetime, you either become a victim or a victor. Victim or victor. I tell you all the time. She wasn't going to be a victim. And I certainly wasn't going to have her be a victim. So she was going to have to victor. And that's what we worked for, to be the victor. Well, listen, uh, thank you for being with me here on a very personal story, personal mission. God bless uh, Christina Croft. God bless her dad, family, and uh, wishing them to heal as best as they can from a difficult situation. And her mom, Laura, my heart goes out to them, I'll tell you. We'll see you back at americaroutloud.com, friends. Remember, it's time to get involved and get loud. <laughs>